Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, Vikram here from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our 32nd podcast. We have Andreas M. Antonopoulos on, who we were really excited to talk to. With his books, The Internet of Money, Mastering Bitcoin, and Mastering Ethereum, Andreas has been an amazing ambassador for the cryptocurrency space. On this episode, we get into a lot of interesting topics. What's changed and surprised him since he published The Internet of Money, how Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other cryptocurrency project teams can learn from one another, fighting back against oppressive regimes with cryptography, OPSEC, how he sees second layer solutions play out, and a host of other topics. This is my favorite episode to date, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed speaking with Andreas. Thanks and enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. Uh, hey really excited to be joined by Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Thank you, Andreas, for joining us. So I'm just going to fanboy for a second and say that... If you must. <laughs> I must. I had read your Internet of Money lecture series a few years ago, and that, that really, really opened up my eyes to the space, and it helped me understand the space so much more than I had at the time. So thank you. Right. You're very welcome. Thank you for reading it. So that was published a few years ago, and I thought it would be fun to kind of talk to you about what is the same. I mean, you, you predicted a lot of things that ended up going in the direction it ended up going. Like we have a second layer on top of Bitcoin with Lightning. What are some things that uh, surprise you? Either they happen sooner or they haven't happened yet. Are any of your reviews from that time period, have they changed a lot? Or do you still have the, the same kind of viewpoint you did with respect to some of the kind of second layer stuff you talked about in that series and time? I've been surprised by lots of things. I mean, I'm, I'm nonstop surprised in this space because nothing is predictable or happening as expected. You can look at big trends and make some broad brushstrokes, but the details are endlessly surprising. Things emerge that I never could imagine. New technologies, new innovations, new ways of thinking about the space and constantly revising my opinions and trying to understand things differently. I've been surprised by the massive run-up in 2017. I'm not surprised so much by the following rundown that I was expecting. I was very surprised by the extent to which the ICO craze took off and also very surprised by how many people fell for how many of these scams and very, very thinly papered schemes. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gold rush mentality, I mistakenly thought that people would be a bit more sophisticated in their choices than that. I guess I had higher expectations. Right. Also surprised by some of the difficult and contentious developments in many different cryptocurrencies. But, you know, my focus is primarily Bitcoin and a bit Ethereum. And I, I was surprised by some of the debates and some of the difficulties that emerged in both of those. You know, things things get heated when there's 
controversial decisions to make. And then in the end, I was very surprised by the resilience of both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Both have managed, I think the cryptocurrency space as a whole has surprised me with its resilience. Uh, it seems to brush off bad news, bad bugs, bad monetary issues, bad markets, just everything it seems to brush off. And I think that's really the biggest surprise I've had, how resilient these technologies are. That's interesting what you just said with respect to the kind of uh, two camps of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Your talk last night was awesome. It was great. And there was a, a comment you made I thought was really interesting. It was at the beginning of the talk where you had said, at some point in the future, the Ethereum community should be thankful to kind of have this, uh, I don't think you said big brother, but it was basically this complement technology that of really kind of hardcore, paranoid. The I think more you, cynical. More, more cynical, paranoid, more paranoid. The more... Yeah, the, the, the robust, uncensorable money yeah. is very necessary. And it's not necessary in the good times. In the good times, it's like, yeah, it's, everything's fine. Yeah. But that's not going to last. And it's not going to last if Ethereum, in fact, succeeds in achieving the goals that many set out to achieve, and it gives people the ability to run unstoppable code across the world that's open and borderless and gives freedom and choice to a lot of people, then it's going to run straight into many institutions, organizations, and governments that absolutely do not want that and will fight hard to stop it. And part of what they're going to do, which is kind of the modus operandi of our century, is financial embargoes, right? So today, in the end, all wars become money wars, right? And we're going to see sanctions and shutdowns and bans and financial interference and things like that, as we already see in, in some countries the most totalitarian of countries against Bitcoin. But it's going to get more broad than that. And at that point, if you want to continue to run these systems and, and have the ability to move value across borders, you're going to need many robust blockchains that each try different ways of surviving. Right. In that vein, so with Bitcoin being a, a currency, we saw... You know, there's been pushback from some governments, but once it became popular, you have seen some effort from the IRS and the government to collaborate on like putting out tax guidance. Or you're seeing some governments accept that this is going to be a part of the economy and how can we work with it yeah. to some extent? To some extent, yeah. And then when the uh, ICO craze happened, I think from the SEC, you saw, I mean, obviously a big crackdown on a lot of what were Utility I, tokens disguised as securities. We've even seen the big crackdown yeah, yet. I think it's trailing by a couple of years. Yeah. So for tokens, like the big ICO craze was what really brought in the government intervention. Mm -hmm. But for smart contracts specifically, or the the unstoppable code, uh, what do you see as like the killer app that's really going to bring the ire of the the authorities? It's probably going to be some kind of marketplace, and. There are many markets and many types of items or things or even ideas that are that are strictly controlled around the world. And free markets in those spaces are going to attract a lot of negative attention. And it's inevitable. It's inevitable that that's going to be part of Unstoppable Code. The key to realize is that everything's going to be part of Unstoppable Code, meaning that we are going to see every human 
expression, the entire range of human interests, activities, philosophies, politics, religion, music tastes, every aspect of human expression is going to also be expressed as an unstoppable code. It's interesting, I was having this uh, Twitter conversation with uh, another speaker at the Ethereum conference who said, you know, that it seems like I'm not worried that they're going to be fascist unstoppable code. I'm not worried, but not because I don't think there will be fascist unstoppable. There will be fascist unstoppable code. There'll be fascist unstoppable code, Marxist unstoppable code, vegan unstoppable code, environmental activist unstoppable code, LGBTQ coin. There is going to be unstoppable code in every category of human expression. The reason I'm not worried is because I recognize that the vast majority of human expression is geared towards creativity and good. And so we'll have a minority that is going to do that stuff. They're going to be surrounded by a number of other things that are going to empower individuals to do good in the world. And in the end, the net sum is good. So I'm not worried for that reason. But of course, we are going to see, we're going to see markets in, in we're going to see markets in illicit goods and illegal goods, and some that I really don't want to see people buying. But I'm a pragmatist, and I recognize that. Yeah that one, this is going to happen whether I want it or not. This is simply has already happened in practice. And secondly, for every one thing I don't want people to buy, there's a hundred other things that I do want people to buy that others don't want. You know, So it's like, it's not just, can you buy weed in South Carolina? It's also, can you buy Bibles in Saudi Arabia? Or can you buy South Korean manga movies in North Korea? Can you... <laughs> You know, can you buy a plane ticket to get your 13-year-old bride out of the shithole she's in before her husband rapes her? You know, there's a whole range of things that many people don't want you to be able to buy or use or interact with. The others see as good that I see as bad and I see as bad and they see as good. You know, that was the entire essence of what I was talking about yesterday. And at some point, if we do have this kind of unstoppable market, it's going to draw a lot of negative attention. That's okay. That effectively, to me, that means Ethereum is actually succeeding. Okay. If it only does meh dApps, then it's failed, right. right? If none of these dApps are actually sufficiently powerful, disruptive, and offensive to someone, yeah. <laughs> then, yeah. you know. Yeah mildness is not a good competitive right. differentiator. Right. To your point earlier where you're saying that the big crackdown has not come yet, and is the, and based on what you just said, do you think that kind of marketplace is what's going to cause that kind of crackdown? Okay. Yeah, probably. Yep. It could be something else, though. Uh, another thing I think it could be, be is political organization. So in a country where there's a totalitarian regime, imagine a virtual Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm in 2020, right? Imagine if the next Chinese uprising, student uprising happened without any students on the street, right? It happened through electronic organizing, unstoppable dApps that allowed people to, to voice in a way that's never happened before. Mm. That could cause the next crackdown, right? That would certainly be a very good reason to ban that platform. And you know, that could happen in any country, not China, of course. It could happen in any country that has totalitarian tendencies. There's plenty of candidates where that would be a very important tool for our organization. So the ability to not only raise money, but also pro 
propagate information and use it for freedom of expression in the form of a DAP as an association, essentially a decentralized autonomous organization for political organizing. That's going to be another really big lightning rod of controversy. Not to Americans, perhaps, unless it's used here to undermine the status quo, (laughs) but certainly in many countries, freedom itself Political organization and dissidents are itself is illegal. So I would draw some attention. And is the form of attack, would it come at the exchange level first? That's the easiest place to to attack. attack, Yes, absolutely. So the first attack we see is through the traditional channels, which means the, the first thing you'd see is bank accounts shutting down. The thing that just happened in India and that has happened in maybe four or five countries at the moment. So first they'll cut off the exchanges from all of the bank accounts, either in a very direct manner, as they did in India. Here's a decree by the central bank, cut them all off by July 1st. Or in a much more underhanded regulator suggests that banks reduce their risk exposure to these types of technologies as they did in England, right? And in either case, the the result is the same. So the banks get cut off, then the exchanges find it harder and harder to comply with the regulations, and more and more of the trade goes underground and happens more through over-the-counter trades between people, all the way to the extreme, of course, of shutting down network access and trying to firewall off the internet from these technologies, which is, is impossible, but at the same time is going to be attempted. And I, and I don't mean this to sound you know kumbaya in any sort of way, but it seems like something that would be benefit the industry would be these, where we have like two separate camps that are constantly infighting or fighting each other, it would help a lot for there to be less of that, right? There are 2,000 separate camps, you know, and no matter when you think you found unity, someone's going to be like, well, yes, but, and then fork another one. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think we would see a moment of unity. And this is my main argument, which is that, you know, it's, it's the oldest game in politics, right? If you want to see internal unity create an external threat, nothing brings together a people than an external threat or even the, the threat of an external threat, not even a real one, just the illusion of an external threat can bring people together. It's not a healthy form of unity, but it's unity nonetheless. And I think we're going to see that in crypto. Because as I've said before many, many times, to the outside world, there are no distinctions between our various factions of weirdo. We are all equally one big crypto weirdo ball of mess that is offending authorities, that is disrupting established systems, that is creating economic, that is disrupting economic interests, massive economic interests. And, you know, they're not going to make very fine distinctions between that. And what that means is in some countries, they're going to start arresting people as they already have, you know, and people are going to go to jail for simply participating in these things. And at that point, they're not going to be like, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm not a Bitcoin cryptocurrency guy. I'm an Ethereum classic. Right, right. You don't understand, Mr. Prosecutor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this might be the same person that thinks the Internet is a series of tubes. So yes, they're not, exactly. No, they're I mean, not understand any of that granularity. Right. Yeah. One thing that comes up, uh, Vikram always mentions this because we'll be walking around and we'll see like a license plate. I think we saw one that had like HODL on it. <laughs> what do you think about like... I think, Vikram, you can talk to this, but I think there's a line of thinking where everything is fine now, but 
you're making it very easy for you to be identifiable as a holder of significant crypto or participant by being very active under your real name or going around with a total license plate or that sort of thing. What do you think the risks are by being very public in the space versus being maintaining more anonymity? No, I, I think people should should be much more careful about their presence and their operational security as a whole. Most people would find my level of operational security to be extreme paranoia, but then they don't face the same threats that I do. But yeah, I mean, I watch people on on Twitter not only talk about their cryptocurrency involvement, but their holdings, and then in the same breath, show where they live and or that they're vacationing, <laughs> or that they vac- yeah, and that blows my mind. So yeah, I mean things things are even without a crackdown, which is kind of the worst case scenario. You kind of think about all of the opportunistic attacks that are happening in our space, and maybe the people around you are perfectly nice people. You know, one of them has a cousin who's a heroin addict, right. and they're going to let slip that, oh, you know who's visiting town? This really, really rich crypto celebrity that I'm very, very excited to go meet. And, you know, the person who's desperate and interested in finding a source of funds is going, oh, really? Tell me yeah. more. <laughs> and one of the downsides to being a very difficult or essentially impossible for someone to unnetwork steal your funds, yeah. the main attack vector becomes violence directly. Yes, absolutely. So and you, it escalates very fast. People need to be very careful about these things and also very aware of the problem with living online is that it never goes away. So if you just leak a little bit of information every day, just a tiny, tiny bit, it adds up, right? Most people have such low levels of ops, like the 20 minutes of searching through their social media. I can find the name of every relative, their date of birth, their anniversary dates, the names of their pets, the names of the pastor, you know, their physical address, the name of their school, their kids' school. It's so easy to find because eventually they've posted some party, some this, that, or the other, and people are not careful. I am, but... Do you think this kind of uh, this kind of opsec should spread to the developer level? Like, should uh, like this, I- this kind of opsec should spread to the human level? Okay. Every human who lives in the online digital economy of the twenty first century needs to be aware that they're leaving this massive trail of breadcrumbs that can be exploited by unscrupulous actors all the time. This has nothing to do with crypto. This is part of living in an inside-out, transparent, broadcast media world that we do. And that comes with consequences. You don't see the consequences until later. That's the problem. People don't realize that all of these little breadcrumbs are leaving, build up, and then if for whatever reason they become a target in any way, you make a stupid comment you know, and then get on a plane and eight hours later you get off the plane and discover that all of America is retweeting the video <laughs> of where you made us, yeah. right? Yeah. And suddenly you're getting death threats from people, yeah. right? So you can become a, a hate celebrity yeah. in an instance yeah. in most modern societies today yeah. and, and suddenly become a target for, for no reason, right? Or for a random reason or for a very deserved reason, but nevertheless. Yeah. This is the, the challenge. It has nothing to do with crypto. It has to do with our online lives. Um, with respect to developers who, say, want to contribute to 
Ethereum or Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, should they do so under a pseudonym? I guess that's what I was getting at. That's a personal choice. I have a lot of respect for the people who do. It's quite all right. Yeah. And again, it depends what your situation is. If you live in a relatively free country with a relatively strong set of civil institutions and you don't travel to hotspots very often and you feel pretty confident that that's going to be what happens next, sure, maybe you want to, you're comfortable giving out your name. Uh, you know, a lot of the developers you see who are developing under anonymous, under pseudonyms, they're probably in, in different places, right? They're not just suburban American tech workers who decided to use a hexadecimal pseudonym. No, they, they could be in Pakistan, they could be in China, they could be in any place where they face a very different security environment. Shifting threads a bit towards the second layer side. So we've seen a ton of activity on Lightning, especially over the last year or so. Development, actual money on the network and so forth. How do you see that playing out and kind of, uh, you know, where where do you see that going over the next few years? I think it's going to continue at that frenetic pace and get even faster. You know, I think what people don't realize is that Lightning as a second layer technology not only opens a new frontier for scalability, but it changes the risk environment significantly. Meaning that when you make changes to the core protocol layer of Bitcoin, you have to do so in a tremendously conservative manner because that's the root of trust. Because Lightning uses that root of trust and can rely on it entirely, it's a lot more flexible than, just like the Ethereum community has a backstop of hard money and a very robust system in Bitcoin, Lightning has a backstop of hard money and a very, and that unleashes innovation. You can have, uh, for example, there are three primary clients and two or three additional clients developed according to the bolt specifications on Lightning, that are loosely interoperable. You can't do loosely interoperable on the base blockchain because you fall out of consensus and suffer economic consequences almost immediately. You have to be in absolute lockstep, and it's very difficult to do that. But on a second-layer protocol, you don't have to because the consensus rules are dealt with elsewhere. You've offloaded that security risk. And so you can have much more loose interoperability. What that means is that you can simultaneously have different approaches to the protocol operating in the network. You can have clients that are trying different techniques, that have different levels of risk, et cetera, et cetera. And so that unleashes a lot of innovation. It's created a lot of flexibility for people to experiment. And the pace of innovation in Lightning is 10 times faster than what's happening in Bitcoin. It's more akin to Ethereum. That's great. It's basically opened the door again. Um, Bitcoin in its base layer, as I predicted back in 2013, became ossified. There might be a narrow window to make a few more changes to the core protocol, and then it's pretty much done. I don't think we're going to see anything else. All of the innovation moves to the second layer, and that's great. You know, we do hear a ton about Lightning, but what are some other second layer technologies people probably aren't talking about as much that are interesting to pay attention to? There's a whole raft of second layer technologies uh, being developed for Ethereum. I'm not familiar enough to name them. I know some of them are more sidechain. Some of them are based on state channels or payment channels. I'm actually really interested in the possibility of 
eventually merging some of these, meaning that I would love to see an implementation that crosses the Bitcoin Ethereum gap, where you can have a payment channel that originates in one, terminates in the other. That's already possible between Bitcoin and Litecoin. And theoretically, it's possible. The Lightning Network is not cryptocurrency specific. However, it has certain assumptions built in that are assumptions that you're dealing with a UTXO set blockchain and Ethereum is an account-based blockchain. That fundamental difference makes it difficult to integrate and build something compatible. But nevertheless, I'm optimistic. I'd like to see that because I think if you have the ability to seamlessly move, seamlessly, instantly, securely, and privately move value from one to another without an exchange, I think that changes the game. Uh, to me, one of the most interesting capabilities of a second layer technology is that it crosses cryptocurrency. It becomes a network that binds together all the different blockchains. And basically, just like the internet is a network of networks, layer two blockchain networks are networks of blockchains. And we can't see that yet because Litecoin and Bitcoin are too similar. I think that would be a huge breakthrough. Yeah, I wonder how that could work technically. I'm not super familiar with the what the difference is between a UTXO set and a, an account-based well, te- set. Technically, it all comes down to, one, you need an implementation or a simulation of a hash time lock contract in Ethereum. That already exists. Someone wrote an EIP a few months ago. And then you would need to re-implement the Bolt specifications, which is the interoperability standards for Lightning. But for some of the functions, you basically have to simulate them on Ethereum. Right, like for example, in a UTXO set, we have things like change and spendable coins. You don't have that problem in Ethereum. It's a different mechanism, so you don't have change, which simplifies things. So you'd have to simulate some of the arcane internals of UTXO in order to do it in Ethereum. But I don't see why you can't. The fundamental concept of this is lock money in a contract that is effectively a two of two multisig. That's how. Lightning works. That's how all payment channels work. And then it update, do state updates that allow you to shift balance from one to the other participant in that two of two and have the ability at any point in time to submit some kind of commitment that finalizes the channel with the accurate balance that you've exchanged. And there's no reason you can't do that with a smart contract. It doesn't matter what the underlying blockchain is. All you have to do is have the function to do a a two of two multisig with a time lock delay and different redemption mechanisms, which in a smart contract is easier to implement than it is in Bitcoin script. So I think it's very possible. It would be something I'd be very interested in pursuing myself if I had the time. Um, and I guess along those lines, so you have the mastering Ethereum book. So is that is that out? Is that ready to? Yes, that was published on December 10th, and uh, actually it was more than 150 copies sold here at, at this event. Oh, that's great. You can get one downstairs. Mentally going into either learning about Bitcoin or learning about Ethereum, what are some of the differences there uh, in terms of like pedagogical difference of a, a developer who wants to get into either? Like, What might be some differences? Yeah, I wrote about that in the first chapter of Mastering Ethereum because I think it was important to highlight some of the differences. Some of them are, I mean, there's some fundamental technical differences in the two systems, including how state is managed. Of course, in Bitcoin, you have the UTXO set, which is about value. In Ethereum, it's a much 
big or more complex problem because you're not only dealing with value, you're dealing with the memory state of smart contracts, you know, their execution state, data store, et cetera. That's a technical difference. There's also cultural differences in the pace of development, the style of development, uh, pace of innovation. You know, as I mentioned before, Bitcoin is a much more conservative system because it has to be. And Ethereum is designed to be much more flexible with the corresponding loss of security that it has to work with through more iterations and more maturing before you can really trust some of the code. And those two different approaches then lead to different application use cases. And I think it's important to realize that in all of these discussions, there is no right approach as an absolute statement. You can't say this is best because you have to assume a context, meaning that just like in an evolutionary environment, what determines fitness is the environment, not the species, right? The species adapts to the environment, not the other way around. And so if you ask me, what's best? Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, Tron, EOS, Cardano, whatever. I have to ask a follow-up question, which is, what are you trying to do? What is the application use case? What are you trying to achieve? What is the problem you're trying to solve? If you tell me what the problem is, I might be able to see at the moment which one's the best fit, right? So there's no best way of doing things. There's a best way of doing things if you're building sound money, perhaps, but there's no best way of doing things overall. Just like uh, I use this example, if you want to buy a vehicle, right? So what is the best vehicle out there? Well, it depends. Is an agricultural tractor better than a NASCAR supercar? Depends what you well, yeah. And and a lot of people were like, clearly the NASCAR is better, yeah. Come haul six tons of hay bales with me in a muddy field and let's see how well you do with that. You can't make judgments about the tool unless you understand the job. These are tools and they will fit. And, you know, someone who has a broader perspective is able to fill their tool chest with several different tools and then know when to use the right tool for the job. In fact, that's a very big part of technical expertise is not how you use the tool, but the choice of tool you have in the first place. So that's the perspective I have between these two chains and their differences. So I want to follow up on, on this thread of different points for different mm -hmm. uh, uses. In 2017, I think there was a big, big thought that there might be many different smart contract platforms, many different Bitcoin alternatives, many different, for each tool, there might be many different coins that are successful. And there have been. And there have been. Do you think that with the recent, like there's been more 51% attacks as well, there's a bit of a theory that only the most dominant coin for a given algorithm can survive. Do you think that, that the case is more towards one of a small number of coins for a given utility, or you're going to have a much bigger multiverse? I think what we're going, so it's a bit of both, right? We are going to have a multiverse. That doesn't mean that all things are equal. In fact, what I expect to see and what we've already seen, and I called this in 2013, was the emergence of parallel distributions, Pareto distributions. A parallel Pareto statistical distribution, unlike a bell curve or a standard distribution, is a distribution where you have two or three massive players, if you want, or competitors, have 
80% of the market, the use cases, the users, the applications, the value, any metric you take, you'll find the same two or three players dominating 80%. It's also known as the 80-20 rule. And then the other 80% of the participants dominate the 20% margin. And in fact, they emerge as what's called a long tail, which means that even in a narrow niche, let's say the application of money, you'll have Bitcoin and it will have a significant share just because of early mover advantage, network effect, Lindy effect, and other things like that. And it's probably going to maintain that margin quite strongly for the foreseeable future, unless it fucks it up from the inside. Then you're going to have one or two contenders that differentiate slightly, but strongly enough to still be around. I think most likely differentiation point is going to be privacy. So I think you're going to have a couple of big coins that have a stronger privacy focus, which is a bit of a trade-off. So they're going to lose on some of the other capabilities. You know, one of the big things that we've discovered recently is that a very strong emphasis on privacy opens up these platforms to the possibility of inflation bugs, which then weaken the monetary policy soundness. And so that may be an engineering trade-off that actually creates some interesting differentiation. Maybe we don't want max privacy and max sound money in the same thing because we can't do both. And again, so I think you'll get that, two or three systems that are dominant. But then the long tail is going to be in the thousands of coins, even for that one application, right? And a lot of them will have absolutely no value at all other than sentimental, loyalty, popularity, brand value, whatever, you know, all the way down to Vikram coin that only six friends of Vikrams have. Uh, but for them, this is an important demonstration of their loyalty and friendship towards Vikram. And it has no economic value whatsoever. It's a collectible. But they treat it as money at Vikram's birthday party every year. So is it in the category of money? I don't know. You know, I mean, this is the thing. If you accept that there is going to be that and the people don't behave as rational market actors, People are emotional beings. They have other reasons for using things than just pure money. They're not 100% rational. And that means that people will choose to use things because of all of these little other influences, conscious and unconscious, and that's going to create this massive diversity. And this Pareto distribution is going to repeat in every single application category. In the virtual machine smart contract space, there's going to be two or three big ones. And then there's going to be a thousand little ones. And we're going to see that pattern repeat. And the reason is because we see this pattern emerge in all systems that touch uh, social beings. Mm -hmm. So whether it's music artists or it's sports teams or it's you, you see that same wealth in societies, you see that same Pareto distribution emerge every time. Well, Andreas, you've been super uh, generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, it was really awesome to have you on. This is a, a favorite conversation yet. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks.